good to be with you. My name is Ethan Magnus, and at least for another like 20 hours, I am one of the pastors here at Mountain Christian Church, and it is good to be with you. Uh, so, good to be together here. Uh, yes, this is my last day on staff, and just super glad to be with you. Love you all so much. If you're a guest here with us today, boy, we're glad you're here. You're here on a super great day. We're in the middle of this series uh, called It's Just a Phase, and we're talking about the phases of life, and what we're learning is that with a little extra attention, we can get a lot out of these phases that we might have otherwise missed. Uh, we've got a definition of this word phase that comes from a book that's kind of influenced some of our thinking on this. It says this, a phase is a time frame in a person's life when you can leverage distinctive opportunities to influence their future. And we've just been trying to take that definition seriously, that, it, that there are some times in our lives that present distinctive opportunities, and if we take it seriously, we can leverage them and change our future and perhaps the future of the people around us. I'm probably more attuned than usual to the sense that life has phases right now uh, because my family's getting ready to move. Uh, we've been here 11 years. If you'd asked us five years ago, is this Maryland thing just a phase? I would have said, no, it's not a phase. It's our life. This is who we are. This is what we do. It's not a phase. Well, here I am a few years later, and it, I guess it sort of was a phase, right? It was an, it was an opportunity. It was, a, it was a season in our lives, and now we're moving to a different season. And so we're, we're asking ourselves, well, did we make the most of it? You know, did we capitalize on every opportunity? Uh, by God's grace, I feel like we did mostly make the most of it, but probably there are some things we missed along the way. And that's actually the tagline to this series. It's just a phase. Now, usually when we say it's just a phase, we finish that sentence with it's just a phase, so ignore it. It's just a phase, it'll go away. It's just a phase, wait it out, they'll be on to the next phase. But we're trying to say something different. We're trying to say it's just a phase, don't miss it. It's just a phase, and the phase won't last too long, so make sure you don't miss it. Make sure you make the most of it. Today we're talking about a phase that lasts for nine years, but those nine years go by pretty fast. We're talking about adolescence, teenagers, 12 to 21. It, it, it's probably the phase we talk about the most and think about the most, but it's also the phase that for a lot of us is the hardest and the most complicated. And from my perspective, it feels like the phase that's the fastest. Here, I got a little video to show you just how fast this phase is. Check this out.
I love that video. One minute and two seconds. That's how long it takes to go from 12 to 21. When the video starts, he's a little kid. When the video ends, he's a grown man with a beer drinking coffee. That is adolescence, right? At one end, children. At the other end, adults. Now that's a pretty seriously fast phase. And the thing we're challenging one another today is to not miss it. Adolescence, don't miss it. Make the most of the phase you've got. Everybody else, don't miss it. Don't miss this phase in their life. Help them leverage the distinct opportunities it has. We're reading this book. It's just a phase. It's kind of it's taking developmental theory and kind of helping it, kind of boiling it down for those regular people like us and helping us understand the distinctives of each phase. Lots of good stuff in it. One of the things, though, that fascinated me about this phase was the questions that dominate the adolescent moment. The questions that kind of rise to the top. They did all this research trying to figure out what are the pressing questions that kind of are important to adolescents. Like they say with little kids, one of the pressing questions is, is my world safe and consistent? And if a little kid thinks the answer to that question is yes, they can navigate lots of things as long as kind of their world has some consistency to it. Well, for adolescents, it's different questions. But what's interesting is they discovered it's kind of this same set of really important questions that every adolescent is trying to get answered between 12 and 21. Here, here are a couple of them. Listen, you, you'll see what I mean by the level of importance of these questions. We have questions like this. Who do I like and who likes me? Who are my friends? Adolescents are trying to answer that question. Who am I? Am I needed in the world? Where do I belong? How do I fit in? Why should I believe? Not what do I believe. We spent 12 years telling them that. But now it's why do I believe? And do I even believe? How can I matter? Does my life matter? Do I have value in the world? What will I do? What is my purpose? These are the questions that adolescents are asking and answering between 12 and 21. A couple things I noticed about these questions as I was reading about them and studying them. The first was this. These questions, the questions that dominate adolescence, are questions that never go away. My guess is everybody here has some level of resonance with those questions. Do I have value? Do I matter? What's my purpose? Who am I? Am I needed? Do I belong? Where do I fit in? Who do I like? Who are my friends? These questions, the questions of adolescence are questions that stay with you. That's the first thing I noticed. The second thing I noticed is that how you answer these questions will fundamentally alter the trajectory of your life. Think about that. Think about how a person answers the question, who are my friends, fundamentally changes the direction of their life. How a person answers the question, do I fit in, do I matter, am I needed, fundamentally changes the direction of their life. How you answer, does my life have purpose and meaning? Just think about that. Imagine a person who has answered that question, yes, I have value and my life has purpose. Well, that person is on a trajectory toward goodness and life and productivity and meaning and purposefulness, etc., etc. A person who answers that question, no, my life doesn't really have any value and doesn't have any real purpose. Well, that person is also on a trajectory toward hopelessness and despair 
and lostness and just kind of spinning in circles? And as long as that question is answered like that, they're probably going to stay stuck there, right? Here's the other thing. I'm going to just raise the stakes a little bit for this 12 to 21 adolescent phase. These questions, they will get answered in this phase. These questions get asked in this phase, and they get answered in this phase. The question is not whether or not the questions will get answered. The difference is only how they get answered. Your adolescent, the adolescent you love, is going to work through these questions between 12 and 21. And by the time they're 21, they will have an answer to the questions, where do I belong, who am I, am I needed, do I matter, does my life have purpose? And how they have answered those questions will form a foundationally significant part of the further trajectory of their life. Some of you are here today, and your adolescence is well in your rearview mirror. But you can recognize even now that your life is sort of spinning out of control because of how you answered these questions. Maybe because of how you answer them today. So that's why I'm just so glad. I'm so glad that we are the people who have the right answers to these questions. Now, I don't mean right as in we're right and they're wrong. I mean we have the right answers in that we have the answers that give life. There is a set of answers to these questions that leads to life and wholeness and fulfillment and what all of us desire and what God wants for us. And God has given us those answers. And we don't have time to work through all of them, but let's just take a look at a couple of them and see if you know what I'm talking about. Listen to this one. One of the main questions that adolescents are asking between 12 and 21 is this question right here. Am I needed? Do I belong? Do I fit in? Adolescents are asking that question. Hint to adolescents, so are we. Everybody's asking this question. But you start asking it, especially in adolescence. 12 to 21, you're asking this. We see this all the time, right? This is why adolescents are so crazy about social media, right? What a better way to figure out who likes me. Did they follow me? Do they retweet me? Did they press the little heart button when they saw the little picture of the food that I ate? You know, these are the kinds of questions that adolescents care about. These are the kinds of questions we care about. Adolescents are trying to figure out where do I fit in? This is why they join a different club on every day of the week. You talk to your adolescents, so you're into skiing now? Like, oh, I hate skiing, Dad. That was Tuesday. I'm into baskets now. It's all baskets. And it'll be something different next week. That isn't because your kids are trying to drive you crazy. That's just a bonus. The reason, the reason that's happening is because they're trying to answer this fundamental question. Where do I fit in? Do I belong? Do I have a place? I remember when I was a teen, one of the best experiences of my life was that moment where you would show up late to something, like especially like a cafeteria table or a place where your friends are hanging out or they're playing a game, and you show up and discover that they saved you a seat. I love that. Isn't that amazing? You're looking for the answer. Do I belong? Am I needed? Do I fit in? And there it is, tangible proof that you belong, that you fit in, that a group of your peers decided you were worth saving a seat for. I have never stopped loving that. 
It's been a long time since I was an adolescent. I love it when I discover that somebody saved a seat for me. Doesn't that just feel great? It's because we care. The answer to this question, do I belong, do I fit in, it's a fundamental question. How we answer this question changes our life. I'm so glad the Bible talks about this question. I want to look at two texts where the Bible talks about whether we belong and how we fit in. Look at this. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. They had this problem. They weren't sure that everybody fit in. They kind of thought maybe like the nice people fit in or the rich people fit in. They weren't sure if everybody fit in. Maybe they thought the old people fit in. They weren't sure if the teenagers fit in. They weren't quite sure about the answer to this question. So Paul writes and tells them this. Just as a body, though one body has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, that's what it's like with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, well, that wouldn't make it true. It would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong a part of the body, well, that wouldn't make that true either. It would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices. Now you are the body of Christ and every one of you is part of it. Paul is just saying at a fundamental level, you may worry about other places. Do I belong? Do I fit in if I needed? You may wonder that about your club or sports team or friend group or office. You know, cuts are coming. Am I, do I fit in? Am I needed? Do I belong? Or will I get a pink slip? You may wonder that about every other place, but about the church, you need never wonder. For we are the body of Christ, and every part belongs, and every part is needed. This means, church, that we need to make sure that if you're not an adolescent, you need to make sure that you're communicating to the adolescents in your world that the church needs them and wants them, and they belong here, and they fit in here. We need to tell them that we need their service. We need their energy. Who else can stay till 3 in the morning to get things done, right? That's why we need a few teenagers around. We need their critique and their questions. Who better to see where we have gotten stuck in outdated, ineffective ways than a teenager? Teenagers love to tell adults where they're wrong, and we are wrong some places, so we need them around to help us see what we're missing. We need the energy, the love, the ambition, and the passion of adolescence. We can't pretend they're not part of the body. Likewise, adolescents, you need the rest of the church. You can't say, I'm going to go be a foot all by myself and be my own body. I don't need the whole rest of it. You do. I know that's bad news to you, but you do. You need our blessing, our permission, our endorsement, our invitation. If your first question is, do I belong, am I needed? The answer is a fundamental yes. Now, you may be wondering, okay, then, but where do I fit? Okay, so you say, theoretically, I'm needed, but how do I fit into this thing? Because it sort of looks like everything's already happening without me. Well, don't worry. God's Word tells us that, too. 
Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy was a young leader. He was probably in his early 20s leading the church. Paul writes a letter to him trying to explain to Timothy where he fits in this big picture that is the ministry of the church. See, Timothy knew what we know, that the mission Christ has called us to is to make disciples more and better disciples. And so Paul is trying to tell Timothy where he fits into that mission. Here's what he writes, and he says. He says this, uh, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Paul is teaching Timothy where he fits. He says, it's like this. I, Paul, taught Timothy. And here, Timothy, is where you fit. You are going to teach other people. But not just any other people. You're going to teach other people who will teach other people. This is where Timothy fits. Now think with me for a second, though, about these other people who teach other people. What kinds of other people will the other people teach? When the other people teach other people, what kinds of other people will these other people be? Have you wondered that? Because, see, if Timothy teaches the other people what Paul taught Timothy to teach the other people, Timothy will teach the other people what Paul taught Timothy to teach the other people, and Paul taught Timothy to teach the other people to teach other people who would teach other people, which means when Timothy teaches the other people to teach other people, Timothy will teach other people to teach other people who will teach other people. That's exactly right. Now, some of you are asking yourselves, though, surely, what kinds of other people will these other people teach these other people? Well, the answer is very simple. If these other people were taught by these other people, and when these other people taught these other people to teach people who would teach other people, then when these other people teach other people, they'll teach these people what these people taught these people, which Timothy taught them, which is what Paul taught Timothy. And, of course, that means these people will teach people who will teach other people. You are so good at this. Um, and don't worry, this section of the sermon only lasts another 10 minutes, okay? So, now, what kinds of... No, I'm just teasing. That's not going to happen. Okay, so this, this is where Paul says to the young man, Timothy, this is where you fit in. We need you, and we need you to do this. And it just keeps going. So here's the thing. Adolescents, if you're wondering where you fit in, you fit in right here. You're these other people who are teaching people who will teach people. Rest of the church, if you're wondering where you fit in, you're right here. You're also these other people who were taught by other people who will teach other people who will teach other people. This is where we fit in. Not only did they leave space for the table, there's a job for all of us. And if you're wondering what our job is, it's the same thing it's been. We're going to teach people who will teach people who will teach people what we have learned from people who learned from people who learned from people who learned from people. I'm just curious, real practically, what is your strategy by which you are going to learn the ways and purposes of Jesus Christ? What's your strategy for making sure that other people are pouring into you? Because I'll just tell you, if you don't have a strategy, I don't think it's going to happen. I'll just be, just be frank, you know. 
I, I just don't, if you don't have a strategy, I don't think it's going to happen. Flip side, I'm curious, what's your strategy for leading other people, for pouring into other people that which you have learned? Because again, I'll just tell you, if you don't have a strategy, I don't think it's going to happen. If you haven't developed some sort of intentional way to make sure you are learning from people and passing on what you have learned, I just don't think it's going to happen. just want to give a straight up plug here, okay? Talk to adolescents for a second. Ready, adolescents? I'll just be clear. Here's my bias. If you're not plugged into student ministry somewhere, in a small group, Echo Collide, the whole thing, I'm with you. Thank you. If you're not going to mix or move or something this summer, I'm just not convinced you have a strategy to make sure you are learning from the legacy of discipleship that comes before you so that you can pass on a legacy of discipleship after you. I just don't know. If you're not plugged in, I don't know if you've got one. Now, you may tell me you do, and maybe you're telling the truth, but you're not. You know, parents, I'll just say the same thing. If you're not, you know, if you're not leveraging your influence to get your kids connected, if you're not stepping up and volunteering, if you're able, you know, I just don't know if you've got a strategy for learning from the legacy that's come before you and passing on behind you. Again, you may tell me you've got one and you may be telling the truth, but, but you're probably not. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you've got to have a strategy. This stuff doesn't happen by accident. Paul says that's where we fit. Everybody's needed, and where we fit is in this legacy of handing off what we have learned about the ways, purposes, and lordship of Jesus Christ. Stop by. If you, you know, if you don't have, a, if you're like looking at this like here, you're like, I don't have a strategy for receiving a legacy, and I don't have a strategy for passing on a legacy to the adolescents in my life. Stop by our student ministry table. Pick up one of these cards. Go to lunch with one of our leaders so they can talk to you about how you can get your kid plugged in, about how you can get plugged in and be a leader. We need people who get this mission and are doing this. Send your kid to CIY Mix and CIY Move. Your kids are going to ask you. Your kids are finding out the answer to the question. They're working on the answer to the question, where do I fit in? And if you prioritize lacrosse camp over CIY Mix... What you're sort of telling them is where you fit in is on the lacrosse field. And I promise you, they're not going to be playing lacrosse when they're 30. They probably won't even be watching lacrosse on television when you're 30. Because where do you go to watch lacrosse? I don't even know, right? You know? So this is the investment you're making as you help your students answer these questions. Let's talk about another question real quick. Your students, between 12 and 21, we are discovering the answer to this question. How should I live? How do I make moral choices? That's a big question. See, when you're 12, the answer to that question is just, will I or will I not do what my parents tell me? But the way I determine what is right is what my parents say, what the school teacher says. That is how moral, develop, that's how moral choices are made. What the authority in my life says, that is what is right. The only question is whether I will follow them or not. But by 21, that answer is no good. Between 12 and 21, the, the influence of direct parental choice on moral decision-making goes down the whole time. And the influence of independent moral choice goes up the whole time. Your 12-year-old is asking, what, should my, what will my parents tell me to do? Your 21-year-old is asking, is, what do I think is the right and good thing to do? This happens. Now, we still don't always do what the right thing is, I know. But that's how we make choices. It happens the whole time. 
And this is a healthy, good thing. You don't want your 21-year-old limited to your moral vision. You want them to have their own independent moral vision. It's a healthy process, but it's a terrifying one, right? When you realize your 15, 16-year-old is now making moral choices not based on what you think they ought to do, but what they think they ought to do, that is terrifying. But this is the question they're answering. We see teens do this all the time. They experiment with moral behavior. We call it rebellion. What they're trying to do is figure out what are the right moral choices to make. And either we're creating an environment where they come to a healthy, mature, and God-honoring answer to this question, or we're creating an environment that makes it hard for them to do that. And of course, like all the adolescent questions, the adolescent questions are the adult questions, right? We're still asking this question. We're still wondering, how should we make moral choices? How should we live? What's the right course for our life? I'm so glad God's Word speaks into this. And again, it speaks in all the places. Sometime, go read Romans 12 for a vision of a moral life that's just so different than how we live. I love Romans 12. Go read it. We don't have time for that, though. I just want to look at two verses. This is what I understand to be Paul's theory for how to pass on moral values. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Here's what he says. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So in this phase between 12 and 21, and ever after, we're trying to come up with an answer to the question, how should we live? And if we decide it's just a phase, they'll get over it. Well, then they'll stumble to an answer. They will have an answer by the time they're 21. The question, remember, these questions get answered one way or another. But if we want to help them move toward an answer that honors God and sets them up on a trajectory toward wholeness and health and vibrancy in life, well, Paul's giving us a strategy here. He's first helping us tell them, give them a sense of what to teach them. And listen to this. When your child is seven, teach them what's naughty and tell them not to do it. But when your child is 13, naughty doesn't cut it anymore. And Paul offers a different perspective. Paul doesn't say, don't be naughty. What Paul says is, be excellent. Be admirable. Be praiseworthy. He stops telling them to turn from the bad, and he starts calling them toward the good, and the glorious, and the honorable, and the passionate, and the praiseworthy. And this is what we're invited to do for the adolescents in our lives. Don't help them list all the things they've done wrong. They probably already know. But help them see all the good they could do as they turn their life toward the purposes and meaning of God. And the second step, after we've called them toward goodness, is to, and this is, I know it's crazy, we embody our own life before them our own life of moral choices, our own life of moral living, our own life of failure and success as we ourselves seek to train our lives toward what is excellent and praiseworthy and honorable. I talked about how this chain, and I said, listen, if you're not getting your kids in church, you're just missing it because I don't know what other strategy you've got and I doubt you have one. 
But it's when I think about this, when I think about the need for people who will call our adolescents toward what is excellent and will embody their own life of moral challenge and struggle as they seek to follow God, this is where I pause to say we need people to rise up and lead our students. We need people to rise up. There's all this study that says the single largest predictor of the emotional health of young adults is whether when they were a teenager, they had a relationship with a, a, a mentor who wasn't their parents. That's the biggest predictor. That's why parents, get your kids in student ministry where they can meet a small group leader. I, 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 could, really, I could talk for hours on the impact my boys' small group leaders have had on their lives. They're incredible. It's amazing. So you've got to get your kids in there to meet one of these awesome people. But we also need more of these awesome people. We need people who will call our kids to what is good and excellent and praiseworthy and will be able to say, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, put that into practice. When you, when you heard me talk about my failures, learn from my mistakes. When you heard me talk about my successes, learn from my su- successes. We need a community to surround these people. Maybe you could step up and do that. We're all trying to answer this question, how should we live? And Paul says the answer is simple. Pursue excellence. Pursue what is good and praiseworthy and honorable. And trust the witness of the good mentors around you, what you've seen and heard and learned from them. Put that into practice. One last question. It's sort of the question. Between 12 and 21, the people you love in your life, they will come up with an answer to this question. They will have an answer by the time they hit 21 to this question. And how they answer this question will permanently affect the trajectory of their life. In fact, some of you, some of you for whom 21 is a long time in the rearview mirror, or some of you, maybe 21 is just a few years in the rearview mirror, But your life right now is not headed where you wish it was. And the reason it's off course is because of how you answered this last question. It's the question, do I matter? And does my life have meaning and purpose? Do I matter? And does my life have meaning and purpose? We spend so much energy trying to prove that the answer to this question is yes. This is why we pour all of our lives out and all those sleepless nights to write one paper that nobody will ever read. This is why we work so hard to make our college applications look all pretty and perfect and we join 50 clubs that we have no interest in just so we can list them in the place where it talks about your accomplishments and your achievements and we collect all our trophies that one day will be dusty and in a box that you'll haul from house to house and you'll open up and you'll finally decide like we are doing right now, yeah, this is not going one more move. All these trophies that we spend all of our teenage years collecting we should have thrown them away long ago but we were just trying to prove to somebody that we knew what the answer to the question was do we matter and does our life have meaning and then you turn 21 and you've answered this question and some of us have decided i'm not sure my life does have meaning i'm not sure i do matter and we just spiral off to prove that answer true Or you worked really hard and you think maybe if I work hard enough, I can keep proving that the answer is yes. And so that that pattern of overwork and striving just carries right into our adulthood. We try to prove ourselves in the office and prove ourselves at home and prove ourselves on Facebook just so we can prove to somebody that yes, we matter and yes, our life has meaning and purpose. Well, I have the most amazing thing to tell you. 
it doesn't sound good at first. The first part is that all that striving you were doing to prove that you mattered and that you had purpose, yeah, that was a total waste of time. <laughs> Sorry, it did, it did have no impact at all. Um, so that was a waste. But the other part is good, and that's this, that you do matter, and your life does have purpose, because God has declared it so. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. He's trying to answer the question that every adolescent asks and everybody else asks too. The question of do you matter and does your life have purpose? He starts the answer like this. As for you, you were dead. Okay, so far not a particularly good answer to the question do you matter. But it gets better, I promise. Okay, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. Again, So far, not a particularly good answer to our question, but stay with me, it gets better. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following in its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Let the record show that so far, that's a simply terrible answer to the question, do I matter and does my life have meaning and purpose? But it's the true answer until the next sentence. And then he says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not from works so nobody can boast. As a matter of fact, you are God's masterwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you matter? Are you kidding me? You will be seated at the right hand of Christ on a throne in heaven. Could you matter more than that? Does your life have meaning and purpose? Are you kidding me? You're the masterwork of God, which he has created to do the good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. This question, folks, this question, do I matter? Does my life have meaning or purpose? Between 12 and 21, the people you love and know will come up with an answer. Which means everyone older than that, you know, has an answer to that question. Do I matter? Does my life have meaning and purpose? And I'm just telling you, how they've answered that question makes all the difference in their lives. Now and for eternity. And we are the ones who know the answer. How could you know that answer to that question that everybody's asking and not tell them the answer? This is what you could do. These people, these, uh, these sociologists that research life stages, they say for adolescents, the two most important things we can do are affirm them in their inherent value and mobilize them into meaningful service. Affirm them in their value and mobilize them into meaningful service. Well, I can't think of any better way to do that than to tell them about Ephesians 2. 
All their accomplishments they were trying to accomplish, all the resume they were trying to build in, well, that's not going to get them anywhere. But out of God's great love and mercy, they have been made to sit at the right hand of God on a throne along with Jesus. They have been given new life. They have been made God's master work to do the great works that God prepared in advance for them to do. Now that's an answer you could build a life on. 12 to 21. Nine short years. Those nine years last exactly one minute and two seconds. You saw it. Video proof. That's how long adolescence lasts. They're asking this question. It's just a phase. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Oh God, how blessed we are that to us, through your Son, Jesus Christ, we know the answer. That to you we matter. And you have made us for a purpose. Give us the discipline to do what we must do to bear witness to this answer to all those around us, young and old, adolescent or not. Give us the clarity of what our strategy will be to receive what you have to teach us and what our strategy will be to pass it on. And give us keen memories that we will never forget that out of your grace... We have been given life, and because of your love, we matter. And out of your mercy, we have been made your master work, and in your purposes, our lives have purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.